All right, Psalm 119. Everybody have it open still? Page 480, Psalm 119 is a long psalm. It's the longest psalm in the Psalter, in this book of Psalms. It is the longest chapter in the Bible, and that by far. Uh, if you'll look in your Bible and kind of flip ahead, you've got to flip several pages to get to the end of it. It is 176 verses. That's by quite a bit the longest chapter in the Bible. It lasts in my Bible, uh, I don't know, about 10 pages of Scripture. Uh, it's an interesting psalm for a few reasons, and I just want to give you tonight, before we dive into these first eight verses, I want to give you just an overview here. That's what I'm doing now. Um, if you'll look at, at your Bible, it's interesting for a few reasons. One, it's an alphabetical psalm. Uh, I, I was playing English teacher this morning, and I'll do it again. Have you ever heard of an acrostic poem? Of course, everybody's heard of an acrostic. It's where you, you know, each line of the poem begins with another letter, and sometimes it spells a word. Sometimes it's the whole ABCs. Well, this psalm is the whole ABC, so to speak, of the Hebrew language. And in the NIV or the ESV or whatever translation you have, it, just about all of them have the headings with the different letters of the Hebrew alphabet that are being used in each section of the psalm. A left all the way to the very last letter of the alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, it's even cooler than that. In each section, every line, every verse begins in Hebrew with that letter. Every section has eight lines, so these are all octaves. Each poem is an octave, and every beginning word begins with the letter that is the heading of that section. So somebody put a lot of time into this poem is what I'm getting at. Uh, most people believe that somebody was David. Um, that sometimes, well not sometimes, it's mostly always disputed today. But uh, past writers almost all unanimously believe they saw the handprints of David's writing style all over the psalm, which, which I tend to agree with them. Uh, one author calls it David's pocketbook. Pocketbook. Now, pocketbook not in the sense of a purse, which is how we, I think we use the word pocketbook. Uh, back in the day, a pocketbook was a little tiny notebook, like a moleskin that was small, that you put in your jacket pocket or your pants pocket and when you walked around you could take little notes or make little sketches or you could later pull it out and and find what you had written before to remind yourself David's pocketbook as if David and this is the the idea that David when he began to write this psalm began with the first letter and started jotting down notes and he worked his way over time through the whole alphabet so that he could always go back to what he had written to rediscover his own wonderment at the word of God. David found out he was going to be the king of Israel when? How old was David? Teenager, young man. How long did it take him to become king? Several years, right? We don't need to get into the fine points, but several years. Did you know the first thing that a king in Israel was by commandment required to do before they became king was this. They were to sit down with a blank notebook or scroll. They were to take a copy of the law, the Torah, and they were to, with their own pen, write every word of God's law in their own notebook. This was kind of a way of saying, if you're going to lead my people, God speaking, if you're going to lead my people, you need to know my word, and you're going to write it down. You, you yourself are going to write your own personal copy of the Bible if you're going to sit on the throne. 
and you're going to pull it out throughout your reign, and you're going to refer back to your own copy. Now, you're going to make sure the priest is there when you write it, because I don't want you to do any funny business. I don't want you to edit, you know, the parts that you don't like. I want you to copy it exactly as it is, and somebody's going to be watching. Now, David did that, likely. And I think this psalm is something like maybe what he was writing as he did that. He, he was writing one Hebrew letter after another, all the different reasons why he found God's word, his law, his commandments to be exhilarating, nourishing, and encouraging to his heart. David was a man with a love affair for God. You can say a lot of other things about David, and you know, and, and they're not all good things, uh, of course. But at the end of the day, he was a man who loved God sincerely from his heart. And one of the ways that, it, that he showed that was how much he loved God's word. And that's why we want to look at this psalm together. Uh, we believe here at Greater Hope, and I believe, um, that you can't know God without the Bible. And the degree to which you love the Bible and the degree to which you are immersing yourself in the Bible is the degree to which you will know the Lord your God. Right? And I also believe this. Now this, this might you know, be something harder for some to believe. But, but I believe that a study of the Bible does not dry out your spiritual life. It nourishes it. Some people think the opposite, right? The more I read, the more dry and dull. I don't think that's the case if you read it right. And that's, that's why we're looking at this. I want to show you how to read it right. I want to show you how to have a real living, breathing relationship with God through his word that is full of delight and satisfaction. Beginning tonight with these first eight verses, the first octave, the Hebrew letter Aleph, which, by the way, is what's on the front of the bulletin. Somebody asked, what's in that heart? <laughs> That's the letter A in Hebrew, Aleph, symbolizing that God's word has been placed in our hearts. All right, y'all ready to look at the first eight verses? Um, I think the key verse in the first eight is what you find in verse 5. David's prayer that the ways, that his ways would be steadfast in keeping God's word. In other words, David's prayer is that he would be devoted in heart to the words that God has shared with him. And we want to talk tonight about what that means. Uh, when I was a kid, I've told you this before, but when I was a kid, I used to really love looking through the medical book that we had at our house. And one of the reasons is I, I mean, this is, I was, maybe it's the boy in me or the child in me, but I liked looking at the pictures of the things that could go wrong with people's body. And it was, gro it was gross, and the pictures were gross, but there was something that sort of fascinated me about it. And each, each picture also came along with, like, here are the symptoms that you have. It. And, and by the way, I always thought I had everything that I read, which is, I think every time you do WebMD or whatever, you think you have every disease. Uh, because, you know, a lot's wrong with us all the time. Lots of symptoms overlap. I thought I had everything. And yet it almost always had a section that, that described how that thing might be treated, too. And I always was fascinated by that. Never wanted to be a doctor, but I was always just fascinated by what was going on there. Well, I think it, when you go to the Bible, you'll find a, this from time to time, that the Bible sort of slips into being a spiritual medical book. And it describes a condition or conditions that a human might have. And it gives you some pictures of what it looks like. But then it also tells you how you can remedy that. And one of the number one conditions that the Bible speaks about in saying that it's, it's what's wrong with us is this idea of a divided heart or a divided mind. 
I'm going to ask you, this is an, Sunday night's interactive a little bit, so I'm going to ask you a question and you're allowed to answer if you don't know that. Where in the Bible can you think of that God mentions the, a divided mind or heart? Now, this is a tough question, but somebody might have it. I don't know. If not, it's okay. That's, that's right. This is Jesus saying that, right? You cannot serve two masters. In other words, you can't have a divided heart. You can't serve God, and you can't serve money at the same time. If you, if you do try to do that, you're going to either hate one and love the other or love one and hate the other. You can't love them both if they're going to be your master. That's one place. Where else? That's right, yeah. Choose this day whom you will serve. That's Joshua. Choose this day. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You choose whether you're going to serve false gods or the real God, Joshua says. But you've got to choose. Uh, in the New Testament, James, when he's talking about prayer, says, Let a man ask in faith, for, or a woman, ask in faith for wisdom. Because if a man doubts, if he's divided in his heart when he asks, let not that person think he'll receive anything from the Lord. A divided heart is a condition that the Bible diagnoses as fatal. Well, this little eight-verse section at the beginning of Psalm 119 is the remedy for the divided heart. It describes first, if you look at your bulletin, first the blessing of the devoted heart, second the longing for the devoted heart, and lastly the characteristics of the devoted heart, which is the opposite of the divided heart. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. So let's look together, first of all, at the blessing of a devoted heart. Look down at your Bible again, verses 1 through 3 in the psalm. Uh, notice how verses 1 through 3 all have the same theme. This is poetry, so there's repetition. Blessed, blessed, verse 1. Blessed are, verse 2. Blessed are. There's parallelism in both lines. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. It's a parallelism, meaning the one whose way is blameless is the one who walks in the law of the Lord. They mean the same thing. And blessed are they. Verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, devoted heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Again, parallel. They're, they're blessed. The person who keeps God's testimonies is the one who seeks God. Not with a half heart, not with a partial heart, but with the whole thing. Completely devoted. And a devotion for God will mean a devotion to the things that he says, to his word, whether it comes in the form of commandment or in the form of promise. The heart that loves God loves his word. In fact, I love the fact that in verse 2, keeping God's testimonies is parallel to the same thing as seeking him. Um, this kind of debunks an idea that's common where um, you know, some people think that you make more out of the Bible than you do out of God. You know, it's, it, they call it Bible-olatry. Like you're, you're idolizing the Bible. Well, actually, according to the Bible, that's, well, hogwash. That's a technical theological term, hogwash, for that idea. And the reason why it's hogwash is, well, just like with you, uh, if someone says, I love you, but I hate everything you say, well, okay. 
help me understand what you mean by that, right? Or I hate some of the things you say, or I hate, you know, how can that be? Um, a person's word is a revelation of their heart. God has revealed his heart through his word to our heart so that he could capture our heart. That's the whole point of the Bible. That our heart might be captured by his heart as we see his heart, his ways, his desires unfolded before us. And so to keep his word is to seek him. I want you to notice too that the Bible calls into uh, play both our hearts, our inside life, and our outside life. Uh, what words there are related to the outside life, the way that we actually live in verses 1 through 3? Blameless, yep. Uh, particularly it says their way is blameless, right? And a way is a way of life. Uh, verse, verse 1 again, they walk in the law of the Lord. Uh, verse 3, they also do no wrong. And so there, there's both this need to have the heart devoted, keeping, seeking like treasure, guarding like something valuable, what God has said to us, but also to actually bring it out into your life and what you do, your, your way, your walk, the things you think, the things you say, and the things you do. And all of that as a package deal is described by David as being what it means to truly seek God with the whole heart, to truly, to truly seek him, to want him in your life is the same thing as desiring to know what he says in his word, why he says it, and what implications it might have to my life. Now, over all of this, uh, David puts the banner, blessed. Blessed. Verses 1 and 2. The Hebrew word, asher. This is what blessed is. Asher. Happy. Happy. Happy are those who love God's word. Happy are those who devote themselves to what God says and who seek him with their whole heart. Now think about that. What kind of happiness do you think uh, David is describing? Is this a quick shot of woo? You know? <laughs> what is this? Peace, Peace yes. It's, it's much ser more serious, right? More serious than just woo, flash in the pan kind of happiness. It's a settled Peaceful, contented, full. I think of the word full when I think of what the Bible says about blessedness and happiness. It's not merely a temporary feeling based on circumstances. It's a deep reservoir of fulfillment because I know that I have all that I need. Well, the person who engages themselves fully in knowing God through his word is the person who's likely to know that. The person who is likely to be filled to the brim with all those things that really do satisfy. Again, a study of Scripture doesn't dry out our lives, or at least it shouldn't. A study of Scripture should nourish our lives, both heart and in the way we actually live our lives. There's, there should be no uh, gap between those two things. Does that make sense? Now, of course, there are ways of approaching the Bible that are quite dry. Uh, I, I can... Um, Think of a couple. Uh, one, uh, when I was in uh, undergraduate at Florida State, I had professors who taught the Bible. They were Bible professors at Florida State. They did not believe in the Bible. 
Now, okay, well, why did they... Why do they teach it? Well, well, obviously, the Bible's an important book. It's an important book to Western civilization and all that, and so that's why they were interested in it. But their method of teaching it was quite different than anything I'd ever heard in church because it didn't have this sort of, they didn't have this, this verve, <laughs> this excitement, this, this real personal face-to-face kind of quality that a truly believing heart has for God and for his word. It was totally absent. It was like they were dissecting a frog when they analyzed the Bible, rather than what a Christian does, which is having God dissect you. <laughs> That's a whole different thing. And David, you can imagine David, right? He's been anointed king. He's writing down this law in his, in his scroll, and then he has his pocketbook. And as he's writing it in his scroll, he's jotting down the things that God is teaching him in his pocketbook. And he's saying, look, I believe these words are the words that, that are really life-giving. These words are the ones that can lead to true happiness. But, you know, in order to have true happiness in these words, you've got to give your whole heart to it. You can't give halves. And you've got to recognize that it's God personally speaking there. The Bible is, well, this is cliche, but the Bible is like a letter from God. I think that's the right way to put it, even though it's cliche. And yes, the Bible's full of many different kinds of literature, poetry, history, letters, weird visions, <laughs> descriptions of laws and sacrifices. And yet in all of it, there is the personal voice of the Lord speaking and addressing people who would believe. And there is a way laid out in front of us to delight to joy, to blessedness. That's the first thing, the blessing of a devoted heart. Let's look at the second thing, the longing for a devoted heart. If you'll see that in verses 4 and 5, you look at your Bible. Um, Somebody may have wondered, okay, Stan, I'm thinking about what you're saying right now, and then I'm thinking about what you said this morning, and it seems like it seems like what you said this morning was we're not under the law, and now you're, you're holding up for us, David, and it seems like he wants nothing more than to be under the law. <laughs> He's like thrilled with the law. Well, look at what it says there in verses 4 and 5, and you'll see that David, yeah, he loved God's law, as we all should, but he loved it in a gospel way. Uh, he, he did not love it in a legalistic manner, In verses 4 and 5 prove it. Look at verse 4. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. What what, what does that uh, say to you, the word diligently especially? What what does that communicate to you? Diligently. You've got to know what they are. To keep them diligently, you've got to know them. And then when you know them, what does it mean to keep them diligently? Due diligence, Right? That's a phrase we use a lot to describe research and figuring things out and making sure you dot your I's and cross your T's and all those kinds of things, right? And, and David is recognizing God in your word. When you give us commands, when you tell us how to live, you expect that people would really do it from like beginning to end, from top to bottom, like every, every T crossed, every I dotted. I mean, you are a precise God. And your word is precise. And oh, you you can kind of hear the awe in David's voice. And then look how he follows it up in verse 5. He's no legalist. 
Uh, David is not a man who is under the law in the sense of being condemned by it. He knows the gospel. Because what does he say next? Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Now think about it. Oh, that my ways. Have you ever said something like that? Oh, that fill in the blank. When's the last time you said that? Oh, that the kids would be quiet. You know. Oh, that five o'clock would get here. You think things like that, don't you? Oh, that vacation would come. When you say something like that, you're implying two things. One, you're longing for what you don't yet have. Two, that you know you don't yet have it. You recognize your present experience is not the experience you're longing for yet. Isn't that cool? Uh, David's a man who knows what God has given us in the word. He believes it to be a rich treasure to be kept to be walked in, to be valued and prized. He knows God is a precise God and will admit no exceptions to his standards. And yet, what David has to say to God is, God, oh, that I might become what I am not already. At this particular moment, I am not a man who is completely steadfast in keeping your ways. And yet, Lord, you have awakened in me a desire to be made steadfast. God, change my heart. Make me a new person. Show me grace. Don't show me grace so that I might become careless. Because that would be a denial of grace. Show me grace that I might become joyfully careful. (laughs) Joyfully careful. To listen to what you say and to eat up every word. You see, if David had been a legalist, what would he have said after... You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. What would he say next as a legalist? You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Thank you, God, that I have kept them more diligently than others. That's the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, right? That's what he says. Thank you, Lord, you've made me better than the other men. It's a legalist prayer. Had he been uh, someone who uh, lacked patience for God's word, he may have said, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, and oh, it's too fussy for me. I wish you were less precise. He didn't do either. Instead, he says, oh, that my heart. He refuses to find fault in God and instead finds fault in himself while at the same time running towards God for the help that he needs. That's gospel. Uh, only someone who knows Jesus Christ can believe that. You say, well, how did David know Jesus Christ? I mean, he, David lives a thousand years before Jesus Christ. Oh, well, don't you understand? Don't you understand how God works? Don't you understand the whole Bible? Jesus Christ is in it all. Everything God has ever done, everything God has ever said, speaks and shows and reveals and beckons us to believe and put our faith in Jesus Christ. David did that. In fact, he so often in the Psalms spoke for Jesus that you find Jesus quoting as his own words huge portions of the Psalms. 
Peter tells us, actually, it was the Spirit of Christ who was indicating to David what to write. All that stuff blows my mind. It's beyond my ability to comprehend. And yet, look at it. David is modeling for us what a gospel believer is like. God, I'm not going to lower your commandments and standards. How dare I? How dare I question the living God? Let me question myself. But knowing your grace, I'm going to question myself while running to you, not while running away from you. Because I know there's welcome in your presence. I know there's open arms for strugglers and sinners in your presence. I know there's forgiveness with you. Oh, that my ways may be kept steadfast, kept steadfast. In other words, in the Bible, a divided heart is a condition. It's a, uh, a fatal condition. But a broken heart is not a fatal condition. Do you all track with what, the difference? What I'm saying? A divided heart says, yeah, I kind of want God, but I kind of don't. I'm kind of in, but I'm kind of out. He kind of loves me, but he kind of doesn't. I kind of want to serve him, but I kind of want to serve myself. I want to listen to him. I want to listen to the world. That's a divided heart. That is a spiritual malady. A broken heart? Actually, the Bible says that is the prime location for the work of God. In fact, the only remedy for a divided heart, it turns out in verses 4 and 5, is a broken heart. (laughs) The only way God knows to heal a divided heart is to break it. Because in breaking it, it's ready to do exactly what David does. Oh God, how diligent you require me to be, and yet how undiligent I am. Oh, that my ways were made steadfast in keeping your statutes and your commandments. Do you see it? It's one thing to have a divided heart, another to have a broken heart. And if you find yourself with a divided heart, as we all have, The remedy is to have it broken. God's word has a dual ministry. Um, This is the famous way of saying it, and, uh, you know, I think I agree with it. Uh, The word comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Have you heard that? The word comforts the afflicted, but it afflicts the comfortable. I think that's probably right. That may be oversimplifying it for sure, but, but other than that, I think it's pretty accurate. The Bible, part of its ministry, part of the ministry of the law is to awaken in us a hunger and thirst for a righteousness we don't have. So that we'll, with David, we'll come with our broken heart. Oh, that I may. Oh, that I might. Lord, bestow on me what I don't have in myself. What a longing. What a longing. A divided heart doesn't long like this. A divided heart, I'll I'll grant you this, a divided heart is miserable. It, It is miserable, but it is not broken. It is not open to God's healing in God's way. It wants healing on its own terms. Hmm. 
And so David, throughout his life, I'm, I'm sure there were many times later in his life, if David is writing this when he's younger, when he's still kind of doing pretty well, can you imagine later in his life when he pulled out his pocketbook and reread this? Imagine some of the things that David would later do that were awful things, sinful things against God and people. I wonder how many times he felt verses 4 and 5 come back to his heart. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast, keeping your commandments. Now lastly, let's look together at the characteristics of a devoted heart. And you can see this in verses 6 through 8, the last three verses. Um, have you ever built something before? Uh, how important is it to know what it's supposed to look like when you're done? You know, putting together even the puzzle. You know, it's good to have that outside, you know, cover of the box to show you what it's supposed to look like. It's always good to know what it's supposed to be when you're finished. Well, in verses 6 through 8, David gives us three future tense descriptions, future tense, of what his life will look like and feel like once the Lord has made his heart steadfast. And he just sort of dances through it. He revels through it. He says, wow, look at, look at what it's going to be like. First, he says, verse 6, then I shall not be put to shame. And someone says, when, David, when will you not be put to shame? When I have my eyes fixed on your commandments. There will be no shame that day when my eyes are fixed. Wow. Think about it. I will not be put to shame. Now, shame and honor were a very big deal in this time and culture. They are today, too. Nobody, who wants to be ashamed, right, even today? No one. Back then, it was even worse. It was a shame-honor culture where almost everything about society was based on whether you were honored or shamed. Um, very different than our more individualistic society where we think about kind of the consequences that are personal. At this time, they thought, oh, I did something wrong. I have shamed my family. That was more the way that people thought at that time. So shame was a big, th big deal. It touched everybody. David says, I won't be ashamed... When my eyes are fixed on your word. Uh, David is reaching for what when he says that? Well, what, what is it he wants so much when he says, I will not be ashamed? How would you put that? What's he longing for? To be right? Okay. That's, I think that's part of it. Yeah, to be right. To, to know that he's in the right, that he's doing what's right. My identity, yeah. So I know who I am. To not be ashamed is to be confident in who you are. Yes. Clint? It's Yeah. That's right. And so I don't have to be ashamed of who I am anymore because I am, I am, my life is striking a note that harmonizes with your note. My note and your note are together. When I got my eyes fixed on your commands, I have no reason to be ashamed. I can have all the confidence in the world. Isn't that what so many people are trying to find? 
right? So many people are trying to find an identity that they can be proud of and not ashamed of, that other people can be proud of and not ashamed of. So many people are trying to find a sense of rightness, like my life harmonizes with something beautiful, something greater than me. Well, David says there's only one way that you can actually get that. That's by having your eyes fixed, your attention settled, your, uh, the dreams of your life directed by the word and the commandments of God. When we have our attention on God's word and we maintain that attention, the need for shame and the need for a lack of assurance and confidence dissipates, goes away. Well, he goes on, verse 70, he gives us another future tense. I will praise you with an upright heart. When, David? When will you do this? Why are you so excited about it? I will praise you when I learn your righteous rules. When I learn what your word is more thoroughly, the more I learn about your word, the more I'll be able to praise you with an upright heart. Somebody tell me, what's an upright heart? What does that sound like? Upright heart. Full of integrity. It's integrity, right? It's all about integrity. Upright means... Um, there's no skeletons in the closet, right? Uh, upright means you are as you appear to be, and as you appear to be is good. David's concern is that when he praises God, he senses that when he praises him, his heart doesn't match what he says. That's the way he currently is. And that's the way we all currently are. Sometimes when we're praising the Lord, you know, our, we don't live it. We, our, our life doesn't match our praise. But David said, here's why I love your word, God, because when my mind gets fixed on your word, and oh, how I'm trying, when my mind gets fixed on your word, I'll be able to praise you sincerely, truly. My heart will know it, feel it, love it, love you. A perfect match of inside and outside, no hypocrisy. Is that also something that people are looking for? A genuine life, a life that's not fake. Yeah, of course, everybody wants that. David says, here's how you get it. You learn by the word of God how to be on the inside what you really are claiming to be on the outside. You learn how to praise God, not just with the lips, but with the heart, with the mind. Then in verse 8, he gives us a final future statement. I will keep your statutes. And I'm excited about it. I will keep them. When will you keep them, David? What does he say? What's next? Isn't that crazy? Isn't that kind of weird, right? Uh, it, it, it sticks out. I mean, the other ones are, they, they kind of finish the sentence. This one doesn't. This one just sort of like, he just throws it out there. 
He's giving us this future vision. Guys, listen to me. I, I'm on this thing where I love the Bible, and I'm really, I'm writing it down over here, and over here I'm just delighting in what it says, and I believe it's showing me the good way. Guess what? When I finally get this thing in here, I'm going to be confident in God and not in myself, and I'm not going to have to be ashamed. Uh, I'm going to be able to praise God with a true and sincere heart, and guess what? I'm going to keep God's statutes, statutes, but before he even finished the sentence, he turns to God in prayer. He stops talking to us and he says, God, don't utterly forsake me. Why would he do that? It's a strange ending to the first poem in the set. What do you think? Why would he do that? Do not utterly forsake me. <laughs> yeah, it goes back to verse 5. That's one reason. Clint? Yeah. He just forgets what he's even saying and says, oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. David just breaks off from what he's saying just to plead with God. God, don't leave me. Don't leave me. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. It is, yeah, probably. Mm -mm. No. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and even, you know, at this stage, you can see how David's hope is not in David. David's hope is not in David. David's hope is in God. Which later on is going to mean a big deal. I mean... Think about this. Okay, there's Saul and then there's David. Um, both men were kings chosen by God. Uh, both men messed up royally, no pun intended. Saul, when he messed up as king, was what? Completely cut out of the plan, just thrown out. David never was. Although you could probably make a good case, David messed up worse in some ways, at least more often. What was the difference? A broken heart, God, you will not despise. A broken heart, you will not despise. Saul never had a broken heart. Saul, when Samuel confronted him about his sin, all he could muster is Samuel... Even if God's going to reject me, at least do this. At least appear to approve of me in front of the people so they don't lose respect for me. That was what Saul said. Well, in other words, what's on Saul's mind? Kingly reputation. Oh, okay, Samuel, fine. If God's going to cut me out, he's going to cut me out. But can you at least not tell the people and at least act like you still like me so that everybody else will still like me? Please. That's not a broken heart. That's a divided heart. Completely divided. David, from a very early age, knew the grace of God and, and, you know, never was a perfect man. But God did not forsake him because David pled with God not to forsake him. He had, a, he had enough spiritual sense to not trust in himself 
but to be justly brokenhearted when he read the Bible sometimes. Not that every time you read the Bible it's going to break your heart, but there are times it will. And that's something that's good for you when it's appropriate. So that you'll pray things like this. God, don't utterly forsake me. God, oh, that my ways would be steadfast. God, forgive me. God, help me. I found it very helpful this week to think in that connection at verses 6, 7, and 8. And I just want to leave you with this. Verses 6, 7, and 8 lay out three things that everybody chases, including myself. Confidence, sincerity, right? Humble dependence, humility. Confidence, sincerity, humility. All those things we all long for. I long for them too. I was encouraged this week to see that it's not the heart that approaches the Bible as if he or she can be a master of it that gets those things. It's the heart that approaches the Bible to be mastered by, by it. Better, by the God who spoke it who will get these things. And apart from that God, these things cannot be found. That's David's big claim. They cannot be found. Uh, his son Solomon would discover that. If you don't believe me, go read Ecclesiastes. He tried to find confidence, sincerity, humility, glory, fame, wisdom, and all these other ways. At the end, he said, you know what? It's a whole bunch of vanity down here on earth. You know, it's a whole bunch of wind. Here's what matters, God. And when you got God, yeah, everything else begins to matter too. But without God, eh, nothing really matters. It doesn't matter. And that was spoken by a man who had it all, Solomon, humanly speaking. I mean, Solomon would have been on Cribs, the show. Remember that? Giving away my age, MTV Cribs. Back when I was in high school, that was a show. I don't know if you know that, but famous people showed you all their, you know, how they had like 20 cars in their garage and, you know, 10 refrigerators full of you know, whatever, brandy or something. I don't know what it was, but <laughs> Cristal, yeah, <laughs> there you go. That, that was the cool thing in the early 2000s, yeah. Solomon would have been on there, and everybody would have been like, "Woo! I want to be like Solomon. And Solomon said, y'all, it is a bunch of wind without God. He should, he should have listened more to his dad. Um... And maybe it's the other way, too. Maybe his dad should have talked more to his son. I don't know which one it was. The Lord knows, but one or the other. Because his dad had learned something pretty early on we're seeing in Psalm 119 that's pretty special. And so as we look at this psalm, this is kind of a flavor of where we're going to be going. Uh, each week, each of these little poems is going to give us uh, an aspect of what it means to relate to God through his word that I hope will stimulate you and spur you on, all right? 